On January 25, 1958, Barbara von Bush and her husband took a cab to see her parents, whom they haven't seen or spoken to for four days. There at the door, her 14-year-old sister, Carol Ann Fugit, stopped them from coming in, telling them that everyone was sick with the flu. They weren't happy about it, but accepted it. On the 27th, both Velda and Marion Bartlett had not returned to work. Velda's mother, Pansy Street, came to check in on her daughter. Again, met with aggressive resistance, Carol Ann would not allow her to come in. She threatened to come back, and with the police. The police did come by and knocked on the door. There was no answer, but a note that read, Stay away, everyone's sick with the flu, and it was signed, Miss Bartlett, was posted on the outside of the door. The police gave the area a quick once-over and believed the house to be empty with no signs of foul play. Little did they know that they were standing on the precipice of one of the worst murder cases in Nebraska history. And it was just ramping up. Welcome, my name is Elizabeth Bougeret, and I'm that person that, when studying the many facets of history, likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate the hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows, because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen, then, to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found this week from my bag of bones. Before we get too far into this week's episode, I do want to drop in a quick warning. There is some graphic and disturbing content coming your way, so if you become uncomfortable, feel free to fast forward or even check out. It's all good. I'll meet you back here next week. So, with the formalities out of the way, let's turn the clock back to 1958. Carol Ann Fugit had been dating Charles Raymond Starkweather for a little over a year. The couple were head over heels in love with each other and barely a waking moment would go by when they weren't in each other's company. So much so that Charlie, or Chuck as she would sometimes call him, dropped out of school and got a job near where she lived so he could be closer to her. On January 21st, 1958, according to Charlie's story, he came to the house waiting for Carol to come home from school and got into an argument with her stepfather, Marion. Things escalated, and in addition to the yelling, Velda began slapping Charlie, saying she doesn't want him seeing her daughter anymore. After a few slaps at his head, Charlie backhanded her, causing her to fall back a few steps. And that's when the claws came out. She came at him again, but this time Marion picked him up by his neck and kicked him out. Literally, kicked him out. Rage swirled inside the teenage head. He drove his car to a shop and used their phone. Marion Bartlett's boss got a curious phone call saying that he wouldn't be in to work for the next few days. The time had come, Charlie decided. He and Carol had talked about this more than once. Charlie went back to the house and sat on the back porch waiting for Carol to come home from school. He knew that she had arrived and went in the front door because he heard her and her mom getting into another fight. Charlie let himself in the back door, and then things really escalated. An all-out battle was underway of the worst kind. Parents against 
teenagers. In Charlie's chilling confession, he remembers the house being loud. Everyone was yelling at everyone. He remembers seeing three-year-old Betty Jean leaning against the doorframe leading into the kitchen. I'm going to slow things down a bit so they make more sense. Charlie, earlier that day actually, had brought a single-shell shotgun to Carol's house stating that he and her stepfather were going to go hunt jackrabbits. He knew it was leaning against the inside wall of Carol's bedroom. Marion left the emotional argument happening in the living room, and Charlie knew that he was heading back to where he kept his tools. He wasn't sure if he was bringing out a gun or a different weapon, so he made his way to Carol's room. He took a shell from the box and loaded the gun in time to see Marion coming straight for him with a claw hammer over his head. He closed the chamber of the gun, he would say, quote, He kept coming and kept coming. I pulled the trigger, end quote. Carol's stepfather slumped to the floor in her bedroom. Carol locked eyes with Charlie but said nothing. Charlie stepped into the living room in time to see her mother staring at him and holding a butcher's knife. Carol asked her what she was planning on doing with the knife, and Velda turned her face to Charlie and said, I'm going to chop his head off. Charlie calmly loaded another shell into the shotgun and waited. Just then, Carol came to stand beside her boyfriend and yanked the gun from his hands. She pointed it at her mother. For a split second, Velda paused as her own child aimed the gun at her. Velda pushed her daughter back by the shoulders, knocking her to the floor then raised the knife over her head. Charlie leaned down to grab the shotgun, turned and shot directly into Velda's torso, point blank. Velda stumbled backwards, turning toward the kitchen. Charlie said, quote, She just stopped. I thought she was going to pick up the little girl, but she never. She turned around and looked at me again, end quote. Velda would fall to her knees, and Charlie would hit her in the back of the head. She still wasn't dead, so he struck her once more. She fell to the floor, dead. Quote, the little girl was screaming. After I hit the old lady, I just came up with the butt of the gun and hit the little girl. She just stood there screaming. Carol was yelling at her for her to shut up. I threw the hunting knife I had at her and hit her in the chest. End quote. 57-year-old Marion Bartlett was shot, but still alive. Carol screamed, quote, he's still moving, end quote. Charlie would hit him in the head with the butt of the gun. Starkweather would say in his statement, quote, I tried to stab him in the throat, but the knife wouldn't go in, and I just hit the top part of it with my hand, and it went in, end quote. Charlie and Carol would stand there to watch him die. Carol asked, what are you going to do with them? And Charlie would say, we've got ourselves in a hell of a mess which Carol responds with, This is what we've always wanted. End quote. Charlie admitted that the young couple talked about breaking free and even fantasized about killing her parents, but he really didn't think it would happen. Charlie alone tended to the bodies, wrapped them and took them to the backyard. Carol sat on the couch silently. 35-year-old Velda's body was wrapped in a quilt and placed in the outhouse. The toddler was beside her in a cardboard grocery box, while Marion was dragged to the kitchen coop wrapped in heavy paper and rags. 
Charlie cleaned up the blood as best he could and threw rugs over the bloodstains in Carol's room, in the living room, and in the kitchen. Charlie would slip out to the grocery store and purchase food on credit while Carol writes the note to post on the door warning potential visitors. Charlie would remember practicing his knife-throwing skills at the walls in the Bartlett house. They stayed in the house for the next six days, playing cards, watching television, drinking Pepsi and eating chips, fooling the world. They knew the flu quarantine ruse had run its course when Grandma showed up at the door. The teens knew they were out of time and needed to move on. Carol packed a bag of clothes and food and money that they stole from Marion's wallet, and they were ready for their new life. A quick glance back at the small, low-income home shows no sign of foul play with the exception of the barrel of the shotgun Charlie sawed off and an out-of-place box of bullets. The police were called back to the same address again once Carol's brother-in-law Robert and his friend Rodney, who also happened to be Charlie's brother, discovered the bodies in the outbuildings on the property. This was a small community in Lincoln, Nebraska, at a time when the streets were quiet and the crime rate was low. No one wanted to believe that such a horrific triple homicide could have taken place in their small city by one of their own. As the police investigate the scenes of the three murders, the couple had been long gone. The investigators could only assume that the murderers were miles away, probably in another state by now. The police put out an alert and ordered the arrest of 19-year-old Charles Starkweather and 14-year-old Carol Ann Fugit for the murder of Marion, Velda, and Betty Jean Bartlett. Driving in his black 49 Ford, it's not long down the road that they stop for gas and supplies. It's documented that Carol, on her own, would get out of the car, go inside the station, and bought food and maps, while Charlie stocked up on ammunition and put a $1.45 worth of gas in his car. They really didn't know where they were going, so Charlie drove around along the outer limits of the city in places he used to hunt. They turned down a road where a schoolhouse used to stand, and all that was left was a storm cellar. They decided it might be a good place to hide out. However, it is January in Nebraska, so that was not going to work. When Charlie tries to drive the car somewhere else, he discovers the tires have become stuck in the mud. Completely stuck. Further up the road is the home of August Meyer. He's a 70-year-old farmer that is known in the area. He would recognize Charlie from times when his family would come to the area to hunt. They decided to walk from their stuck car to the Meyer place. Charlie would later say that they knocked on the door and explained the trouble with their car and that he would need to use the horses to help get his car unstuck. Mr. Meyer told them to meet him in the back as he went through the house to put his coat on. Apparently, by the time August Meyer made it to the back of the house, he didn't trust what the kids told him and grabbed a pump shotgun on his way to the back door. He told the teens that they could warm themselves up out in the shed and he would call someone to come out and look to their stuck car and told them again that they could wait in the shed. Charlie didn't like that, so when the old man turned around to go back inside, Charlie shot him in the back of the head. He dragged the body to the shed 
and they make their way inside. As the body lay still, bleeding out, Charlie searches the house for money and weapons. He recalls Carol sitting at the kitchen near the heat stove, eating cookies and jello she found in Meyer's icebox. It was at this same time, only ten miles away, the police were discovering the bodies at Carol's home, and a thorough investigation was now underway. They go back down the road to try and get their car unstuck once again, but with every press of the gas pedal, the car's tires fling mud in every direction, sinking them deeper still. As the sun begins to set, Carol and Charlie must start walking. Bobby Jensen was working at the family store, looking forward to taking his girlfriend, Carol King, out for a drive after dinner. As they drive out along the main road on a cool, crisp evening, the teen couple pull over to offer Charlie and Carol a ride. Bill Kelly, a reporter and documentarian, puts it, quote, The most popular couple at Bennett High just picked up the most wanted criminals in Nebraska, end quote. Charlie wastes no time taking over the vehicle, pointing a gun at Bobby's head as he orders Bobby to turn the car back to their Ford stuck in the mud. Charlie asks for his wallet, and Bobby hands it back over his shoulder. Carol takes it, removes the money, and passes the empty billfold back to the front seat. Once they get back to the car, Charlie changes his mind and decides to keep the Jensen car instead of pulling his from the mud. He orders both Bobby and Ms. King from the car. He directs Jensen and King toward the cellar. He ends up shooting 17-year-old Bobby Jensen in the back of the head six times. His body lay at the base of the stairs. Charlie claims that 16-year-old Carol King turns to run and he shoots her. He drags her to the storm cellar with the intention to rape her. He pulls her pants and panties off, but said it was too cold, so he gives up. Carol assumed that he raped the girl, and when he comes back to the car, she tells him that she has to use the bathroom. Charlie waits in the car. Carol instead goes to the storm shelter with a flashlight and the hunting knife and brutally mutilates the King girl. She was stabbed several times in the torso and the pubic area and violently sodomized with a blunt object. Charlie would say that she was seething with jealousy and wouldn't talk to him for hours. Commandeering Jensen's car, a 1950 dark blue Ford sedan, the couple head back to Carol's home but seeing the police cars and lights surrounding it, they turn around without being seen. Charlie and Carol talk briefly about a plan they might be able to use if they were caught. They came up with an idea of Carol being held hostage to make Charlie look like a fearsome outlaw. Charlie would admit that they talked about it, but he really didn't think much about it after that. When they asked him why, he answered, quote, Well, I didn't think you were going to catch me, so I didn't think anything of it, end quote. The description of Bobby Jensen's vehicle and the search for Charlie and Carol interrupts the playlists on every radio station. It's getting late, and they need to stop for the night. By the evening run of every major news outlet on January 28th, America gets its first glimpse of the murderous couple. It's a picture found in the Bartlett home of the two teenagers sitting beside each other, smiling broadly for the camera. They look happy. But the days from when the photo was taken was a lifetime ago. A lucky break reaches the police officers. 
Charlie Starkweather's car has been found on the side of the road. There is nothing around it. A storm cellar and fields. They come to the conclusion that the couple must have made their way to the August Meyer home and assume that they still might be hiding inside. One reporter would recall, quote, The police surrounded the house. There were shotguns and loudspeakers. I was sure Charlie was in there. There was no reason to believe that Charlie, or whoever it was, wasn't going to come out with their hands up, end quote. Meyer's brother Lewis anxiously awaited outside with the police surrounding the house. Newspapers and the latest in movie cameras are instructed to stay back at a safe distance. The sheriff shouts through the bullhorn, quote, We know you're in there. We'll give you five minutes to come out with your hands up. Their warnings were met with silence. Hello everyone, it's time for a Bag of Bones sponsor break, and this one highlights Lumi Deodorant. But today, we're not talking about their amazing deodorant products. If you didn't know already, Lumi also creates body wash. Makes sense, right? And you'll be happy to know that the same care that goes into the deodorant carries over to the body wash line as well. Lumi's acidified body wash is clinically proven to work three times better than ordinary soap. Lumi has a low pH, making it perfect for sensitive skin, and it eliminates odor in all the places promoting healthier, softer skin. If you haven't already tried the body wash, consider using the Bag of Bones link in the show notes to give it a try. It has a money-back guarantee and free shipping with any order of $25 or more. Plus, you help support an awesome podcast. Hint, hint. If you know you stink or you take showers regularly, this product is for you. Give it a try today. Click the link in the show notes. Charles Raymond Starkweather was born in Lincoln, Nebraska on November 24, 1938. He was the third child of seven born to Guy and Helen. He had brilliant red hair, which was enough to bring out the cruel, teasing nature of his classmates, but when you add to that a slight speech impediment and that he was bow-legged, he would be bullied and teased daily. School was a difficult place for him, but he manages to make it to his senior year before giving up on education. He loved to draw and paint and go hunting with his brothers. Finding a connection with the rebellious characters played by James Dean in 1955, Charlie would begin to emulate his style. He would dress, smoke, talk, and wear his hair like the misunderstood characters Dean is best remembered for. Carol Ann Fugit was born July 30, 1943. We've pretty much met her family. The only other surviving members of her family left was her biological father, who she didn't see much of, and her sister, Barbara. Carol wasn't considered exceptionally smart, having to be held back a grade, stating that she was a slow learner. She was also known to have a temper, and while she would rarely act out, she would go the opposite way and hold her rage inside. She was considered a people pleaser. Her teachers would all say she was extremely polite and well-behaved. Charlie would usually meet her after school and drive her home until he had to switch jobs. He thought she was amazing. Sure that 19-year-old Charlie and 14-year-old Carol were inside, after all, where else could they be? 
The Starkweather car was obviously stuck, and the old man Myers' vehicle was still present. The Lincoln police pulled out all the stops. When their calls through the bullhorn were not heeded, they bring out the tear gas. Several entry points on both stories of the old farmhouse were used to blow the potent tear gas into the building to flush the teens from inside. Despite all of their efforts, no one comes running from the house begging rescue or surrender. Of course, at that point, they had to wait for the tear gas to leave the house to go inside and investigate. Here they find a dried, bloody trail from the house to the shed that apparently no one saw before, shielding the body of Mr. Meyer. He lay face down, already covered in flies. The house had obviously been ransacked, the icebox doors swinging open, drawers opened, papers tossed around. It was a quick, but not a thorough search by the teens. But the police were no closer to catching their killers. The fear and concern from the police at that time escalated. They were certain they would close this case by the end of the day. Now, they had no certainty of anything. But they all had a foreboding feeling that it wouldn't be the end of the murders. Fanning out in all directions, the police, local friends and family, and the curious begin looking for clues as the teen's next move. They make their way down to reinspect Charlie's car and decide to check out the storm cellar. There they discover the mutilated bodies of Robert Jensen and Carol King, the two teens who offered to help the stranded couple. Sheriff of Lincoln, Merle Carnop, said it appeared as if the pair had been slain in front of the cellar door and thrown down the steps. The Lincoln Star would relate later that attorney Elmer Scheel would call, quote, an unusual sex attack, end quote. The town shuts down in fear. Every store sells out of guns, rifles, and ammunitions. Parents keep their children indoors. Lights are kept on late into the night. Schools were open, but the children did not go out for recess, and every opening was guarded by fathers with guns. The mayor of Lincoln posted a $500 personal check for information leading to Starkweather's capture. The small town had never had any reason to fear before, and now they had six. Well, technically seven, because before this murderous spree the kids were creating, Charlie had actually committed his first murder over a month ago. On November 30th, 1957, Charlie would later confess to the murder he had, up until this time, gotten away with. He scribbled down his confession on a sheriff's stationery and was candid about its details. It was his first, and he would tell the officers how he had to build up his courage. Around 3 a.m., Charlie would pull into the popular Crest gas station and go inside to purchase a pack of Winston cigarettes. The night clerk, Robert Colvert, was working alone. He would go back in less than 20 minutes, but ended up only purchasing a pack of gum. Building his confidence, he came back around for the third time. This time, he wore a hunting cap to hide his red hair and covered his face with a red handkerchief and put on black gloves. At gunpoint, he stole $160 in cash and coins from the register. And I guess because that was easy enough, or perhaps the fear of getting identified, Charlie took Robert out to his car, having him drive to a remote area just outside of town. Once they stopped, 
Robert, fighting for his life, lunged at the gun and the two grappled for control of the weapon. The gun accidentally went off, shooting Robert, launching him from the car. Charlie would exit the vehicle, shoot him again, and leave him on the abandoned road on that freezing cold November night. Charlie would say that he came back to the scene of the crime about 30 minutes later. He collected the bullet casings from the scene and would toss them out his window over a bridge on his way home. I wonder if he told Carol about what he did. On December 1st, Robert Colvert's body was discovered and written off as a transient murder. While the police were surrounding the Meyer home, Starkweather and Fugit were actually making themselves comfortable in the wealthier side of Lincoln in the home of C. Lauer and Clara Ward. Newspapers would blast the local police department for allowing the teens to slip through their grasp yet again, printing, quote, Despite the biggest manhunt in the city's history, the killer and his girlfriend were always several hours, and murders, ahead of the authorities, end quote. In the early part of the day, Charlie pulled into the Ward garage to hide the Jensen car. Charlie would later say, quote, We was gonna have to stay someplace that day cause the car we had. We drove all over thinking what house would be the best. Carol picked this one, end quote. He knocked on the back door and they were greeted by the maid, Lillian Fensel. At first they thought the maid couldn't speak English, but figured out that she was deaf but the language of a loaded weapon seemed to level the playing field, so they pushed past her, entering the house. Clara Ward was just coming down to breakfast when she discovered the teens in her living room. She is greeted by Charlie and Carol, who both have guns pointed at her. They announce that they intend to spend some time there, and as long as she doesn't try anything, no one would get hurt. Somehow, Mrs. Ward makes them breakfast. Later that afternoon, Clara asks to go upstairs to change her shoes, but was actually going to fetch a hidden gun. I guess her hospitality has run dry. When she doesn't return in a timely manner, Charlie goes upstairs and she fires off a shot, missing him. Charlie threw his hunting knife at her, striking her in the back, but not killing her. He proceeds to tie her up and toss her on the bed. Later, they take the maid upstairs and in a separate room, binds her feet to one post and her hands to another, stuffing her mouth with fabric to keep her quiet. Charlie would say that that wouldn't work because she kept making noise, so he added a pillow to help muffle the noise, then he washed his hands of the situation and went downstairs to take a nap in the library. The teen couple would entertain themselves with the latest edition of the evening paper. Carol cuts out photos of both Charlie and herself along with photos of her family. Side note with a bit of foreshadowing. When Carol testified of these actions nonchalantly, she didn't realize that it would damage her case. The articles she clipped told of her parents' death and that they were both wanted for the murder. Spoiler alert, later in the defense she claims to have been a hostage through it all and didn't know her parents were dead until the very end. Clara Ward was eventually found with multiple stab wounds to the chest, back, and neck. The maid, Lillian Fensel, had stab wounds to her chest and stomach, as well as shallow cuts on her arms and legs. When Lauer Ward returned home, he seized the unfamiliar car in his garage. 
He attempts to enter his home cautiously, but is greeted by Charlie and his twenty-two shotgun. At some point, Mr. Ward attempts to escape out the front door, but is shot before he reaches it. His body is found with a bullet to the back of his head, another in the left temple, and he was stabbed in the neck. Charlie would remember Carol napping soundly, peacefully, on the living room couch. Before Charlie and Carol leave the home around 7 p.m., they ransack it, tossing Clara Ward's clothing across the room and pouring out every bottle of perfume on the floor. They would steal handfuls of jewelry and clothes, and Charles would slather black shoe polish through his hair in an attempt to change his appearance. Carol says she helped touch up the back of his hair. Charlie puts on one of Mr. Ward's white button-down shirts, packs up the Ward's 1956 Packard, and they are headed down Highway 34 toward the state line. In their rush to leave, Carol would end up forgetting her high school jacket, which would be found draped over a living room chair. The Wards would leave behind a 14-year-old son that was away at boarding school during the time of the murders, thankfully. Hey everyone, sorry to interrupt. But do you know that the Ragtag Network has its own merch? You can get merch for your favorite shows such as Bag of Bones, Save Me an Isle Seat, or Total Tomfoolery. Just visit www.ragtagnetwork.com slash merch now to check things out. January 29th. The couple is traveling fast and free into the beautiful sand hills of Nebraska. Stopping for gas in Broken Bow, the gas station attendant strikes up a friendly conversation with the driver. They purchase some gas and a new road map. The attendant asks where they're heading, and he would later tell police Charlie's reply would be, quote, guess it doesn't matter, end quote. About three hours later, Charlie falls asleep at the wheel and the car careens into a ditch. They decide to stay there for a bit longer, to sleep. When C. Lauer Ward didn't arrive for work the next morning, and there was no response from their home, Ward's cousin and business associate, Fred Ward, calls the police. Fred would take it upon himself to go to the home, and there he discovered the bodies around noon. One step behind the teenagers once again, the police rushed to the Ward home and were shocked at what they found. This is when the Lincoln Sheriff's Department reaches out to not only the FBI, but pulls in 100 soldiers from the National Guard. Now believing the couple is still lurking in the area, they pulled together every resource to create a block-by-block search. But Charlie and Carol were well on their way to Washington. Charlie would later confess to the police that Carol suggested they head to Charlie's brother's home who lived there. Charlie doesn't stop until they reach Douglas, Wyoming. Hoping for a chance to catch some sleep, a news report breaks through the radio announcing the details of the Packard and the gruesome discoveries at the Ward home. Charlie decides they need a different car. Continuing further west, about 15 miles past Douglas, Wyoming, Charlie spots a car on the opposite side of the road. He turns around and parks the Packard behind it at an angle and sees 37-year-old Merle Collison, a traveling salesman from Great Falls, Montana, sleeping in the driver's seat. Charlie taps on the window, but when Collison refuses to open the door, Charlie fires shots, busting the window and killing Collison. Seven shots were fired into the man after the door was opened. 
Charlie struggles to push the body onto the floorboard as Carol climbs in the back seat. Charlie would later tell a courtroom that his shotgun jammed when he was trying to fire off the second round, and that is when Carol, stepping in behind him, fired off several rounds at close range, killing the man. Joseph Sprinkle, the good Samaritan that he is, passes by the two cars on the side of the road and sees Charlie struggling and assumes it's car trouble. He turns around and tries to help. He sees the body under the dash, and just as Starkweather turns the rifle toward him, Sprinkle lunges for the gun. A full-on wrestling match ensues, and that's when the deputy sheriff just happens to roll up. Not realizing he's so close to the most wanted man in America at the moment, he assumes that there is just some kind of car accident, until a small waif of a girl jumps from the back seat and runs towards the police car, screaming. Bill Romer, the sheriff's deputy, recalls, quote, I saw these cars parked and I was unable to get through. About that time, a young lady ran down the road toward my patrol car, jumped in with me, and started crying and saying who she was and that this guy was going to kill her, end quote. Starkweather, seeing his girlfriend run towards the police, gives up the fight and runs back to the Packard and takes off down the highway, pedal literally to the floor, going back in the direction he just came from. Deputy Romer calls ahead on his radio to update the next town of the escalating situation. And that was suspected mass murderer Charlie Starkweather was heading from Casper straight towards Douglas, and he was armed. Police Chief Robert Ainsley from Douglas and Sheriff Earl Heflin from Converse County, in addition to Bill Romer, were in hot pursuit of the 1956 Packard. On the straight, long highways of Wyoming, the cars would reach speeds over a 100 miles per hour. Charlie was forced to drive straight into the city of Douglas, where he had to slow down in order to maneuver around other traffic. But when Sheriff Heflin started firing his gun at the Packard, people cleared the path. Former Sheriff Ansley would remember, quote, I hooked my bumper into his back bumper and tried to hold him. He tore my bumper off, end quote. Sheriff Earl Heflin, who was riding in the passenger seat, waited until they were outside city limits for about three miles before blasting several shots from his thirty thirty rifle. In the city, he was aiming for the tires, but now, with a scatter shot, he aimed for the back window. Ansley would say, quote, We got close enough to him, and Earl fired a shot. It shattered the back window to where you couldn't see out of it, end quote. The shattered glass flew everywhere inside Charlie's vehicle, and a piece of it nicked his ear. He felt it hit and saw the blood, and he panicked. He thought he had been shot. The Packard veers off to the side of the road and comes to a stop. Charlie steps out of the car and stands still. They could see blood on the side of his face and on his shirt. He moves his hands towards his waist. Ansley fires a shot close to his feet, but Charlie continues toward his waist tucking in his shirt. The police fire a shot into the door jam and demand Charlie to lay down on the ground and put his hands behind his back. Ansley would recall, quote, he just stood there and glared at us, so we dropped another shot at his feet. He then laid down and put his hands behind his back. We handcuffed him and put him in the police car. Starkweather growled under his breath as he was being led to the patrol car, quote, if I had a gun, I'd have shot you. End quote. 
There was an empty thirty-eight and his hunting knife in the back seat of the Packard. At 3.55, January 29th, while the Lincoln police were still tending to the Ward House murder scene, the message comes across the wire, quote, call off the dogs, end quote. Hello, listeners. We are Katie, Amber, Kylie, and Matt. And we are the hosts of Save Me an Isle Seat, a show that talks about musicals in an understandable and relatable way. If you like musicals or theater in general, or if you're interested in them but don't know where to start, we'd love to help introduce you. Come find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or on our website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. And we'll be sure to save you an aisle seat. The Lincoln Star newspaper would shout, quote, Capture in Wyoming ends three-day reign of terror. Starkweather and Carol Fugit caught after 10th killing, end quote. Another would say, quote, Sobbing girlfriend quits killer before gun battle starts, end quote. She'd later say, quote, I was afraid he would take me to Washington State and kill me. He forced me to come along with him, end quote. Deputy Sheriff Romer brings Carol to the jail and says she talked the entire trip detailing how she was held hostage and she had seen all nine murders. Later, she would testify that she had not witnessed any of the murders. When they got to the jail at Converse County, Charlie is put into the cell floor on the ground floor. He leans to his jailer and says, quote, Take it easy on the kid. She had nothing to do with any of this. End quote. Carol is taken to a cell on the second floor. She suddenly refuses to speak to anyone or allow anyone to touch her, including a doctor who tries to examine her. She is sedated and falls asleep. The press quickly dub him the Mad Dog Killer. I'm not sure if it's because they thought he was some crazed, insane murderer, or for the fact that he really did kill the dogs that were protecting the properties of Meyer and Ward. The teens were kept separated and questioned. The press flocked to Wyoming to get the newest angle on the biggest case Nebraska and Wyoming had seen in a while. While the reporters pressed forward with their cameras and questions expecting the boy to lash out and give them a glimpse of the terror that struck the heart of every person living in Lincoln at the time, he never did. He preferred to stay quiet in his cell, even though the reporters had constant access to him. He spoke the loudest through his written words. He penned a heart-wrenching letter to his father. He confessed to the murders. He wrote his thoughts. And, at first, he took the blame for everything. A part of his letter reads, quote, Dad, I'm not real sorry for what I did, because for the first time, me and Carol had more fun. She helped me a lot. But if she comes back, don't hate her. She had nothing to do with the killing. All we wanted to do is get out of town, end quote. Bill Kelly would comment that, quote, In unguarded moments, he seemed no more threatening than a bored high school kid held after class, end quote. He does his best to keep his face turned away and refuses to answer the reporter's questions. In the video footage I saw, it completely contradicts everyone's opinion that he was after fame and notoriety. If that was the case, he missed his chance. Well, vanity-wise. He's definitely gotten notoriety as we're still talking about him more than 60 years later. In the letter he wrote to his parents, he comments on the press, writing, quote, The cops up here have been more than nice to me, 
But these damn reporters, the next one that comes in here is going to get a glass of water, end quote. He would be quoted in Los Angeles Times on January 31st, 1958 as saying, quote, I always wanted to be a criminal, but not this big a one, end quote. In Omaha, Nebraska, the newspaper on January 30th would report, quote, A showdown is expected today between Nebraska and Wyoming authorities over custody of slayer Charles Starkweather, end quote. Starkweather and Fugit choose to be extradited from Wyoming to Nebraska. When they get back to Lincoln, Charlie is sent to the maximum security prison and Carol is taken to the state mental ward since she's only 14. Nebraska's law forbids juveniles under the age of 16 to stay in jails with adults. As the car they arrive in is swarmed with reporters, the Omaha Star-Herald would report on February 1st that Carol responds by smiling and waving. She tried to roll the window down to answer their questions, but was restrained. Taking no chances, and probably due to the massive amounts of people crowding the courthouse trying to get a look at Charlie Starkweather and Carol Fugit, the police posted sharpshooters along the rooftop of the courthouse, just in case. Bill Kreifel, a reporter from the Lincoln Journal, would comment, quote, The security for Charlie during his trial here in Lincoln was incredible. Snipers everywhere. They really felt someone was going to take a shot at him, yet they paraded him around to reinforce the public that he was definitely in custody, and they had more chains on him. I mean, it was a show. It was the drama of it. Even though admitting to 11 murders, and quite vocally too, the prosecutor Elmer Shield decided to go after just one. Starkweather and Fugit would be tried for the murder of Robert Jensen. At the sentencing on February 3rd, Charles Starkweather would plead not guilty to two charges of first-degree murder in the fatal shooting of 17-year-old Robert Jensen. The two counts were premeditated murder and murder while in the commission of a robbery. This charge was tacked on because Charlie had already admitted to the murder and wrote that he had taken Jensen's wallet before he was shot. So, why not? On the same day, Fugit appeared to her sentencing wearing a dark blue shirt, white sweater, and a beige jacket. She was accompanied by her biological father, stepmother, and sister, Barbara. She was charged with the same two counts, and she too pled not guilty. Side note, it was later discovered the beige suede jacket had belonged to Mrs. Clara Wade. Both were held without bond, and were told that if found guilty, they could face the electric chair. Neither family could afford attorneys, so the judge presiding over the case, Judge Harry Spencer, appointed defenders. Hey everyone, it's Elizabeth Bougeret with Bag of Bones. I just need to interrupt this episode for just a quick second to make a sincere request. I've discovered that the best way to help a podcast to grow is, firstly, by word of mouth. If you are enjoying the Bag of Bones content, be sure to tell your friends about it. And then secondly, is through our reviews. Same concept, you're telling others how much you enjoy listening to the podcast, but you're reaching people that you don't even know. And with every new rating and review, the podcast platforms will then share Bag of Bones with other possible listeners. 
So again, if you enjoy Bag of Bones content, please share your views with others by leaving a five-star rating and review that will entice others to give us a try. Thank you so much to those who have already done this, and thank you to those who are about to. Okay, okay, my time is up. Back to the show. Thank you. His story. Charlie's case would go first. May 5th, 1958. The Charlie R. Starkweather trial begins. Charlie is surrounded by plainclothed officers as he is led to the courtroom. It's said he is under the protection of the largest security force ever assembled for any prisoner in the history of Nebraska. Charlie arrives in a tan suit and tie. Against both his and his family's wishes, Charlie's attorney went forward with the insanity plea. Charlie remained quiet as his attorney made the announcement. James MacArthur, who was the defense attorney for Carroll, attended the trial and would later say, quote, I was learning all that I could that might help trying the Fugit case. Even though Charles Stark was extremely vicious, it also appeared rather obvious that he was far from sane throughout the trial. His attitude was that the county sheriff and the county attorney were his best friends, and he referred to them as his best pals, his buddies, whereas his own attorney was his enemy because he was trying to prove he, Starkweather, was insane, and of course, that was an insult to Charles Starkweather. End quote. MacArthur refuses to allow Carol to testify in Charles's trials and threatens that she will invoke the Fifth Amendment if she is called to the stand. Charlie would admit during the trial that at one point during the heat of the killing spree, he wanted to stop and give himself up, and he would explain that Carol convinced him not to. Charlie would eventually tell the jury that it was Carol who clubbed her half-sister, two-year-old Betty Jean, and that she was the one who killed her mother by shooting her. He said that she mutilated 16-year-old Carol King due to jealousy. And while Charlie didn't implicate his girlfriend specifically, he merely said that he did not kill Mrs. Clara Ward or the maid Lillian Fensel. In fact, he did not learn of their deaths until they were arrested in Wyoming. And finally, he told the story of their last victim, Merle Collison, which I mentioned earlier. But during the trial added, quote, Carol was the most trigger-happy person I ever seen, end quote. The newspaper reporters couldn't help but splash that across every headline they could. But again, all of these allegations were denied by Fugit's lawyers. During Charlie's closing statements, his attorney used a bit of showmanship by producing real tears as he tells the jury he believes society failed this boy. He says, quote, a product of our society, I am asking you to save the life of Charles Starkweather, end quote. The prosecutor, Elmer Scheel, called his shenanigans, quote, a deliberate attempt to place a smokescreen of emotion over the facts, end quote, and then announced that he would be calling for the death penalty as it is a, quote, duty to society, end quote. It took 22 hours for the jurors to enter a verdict of guilty on both accounts, and, quote, we the jury do fix the penalty at death, end quote. Starkweather made no comment or facial expression, but simply rested his head in his hands. 
The judge reiterated the jury's verdict to those in the courtroom and on December 17, 1958, said Charlie Starkweather would be put on death row. At the completion of the trial, of course, reporters rushed to tell the girlfriend the results of the case, anxious for a response. Fugit's attorneys told reporters that Carol wasn't interested in how Charlie's trial turned out. She would not give comment. He is sentenced to death by electric chair on May 23, 1958. He makes no comment or rebuttal. The Springfield Union would print, quote, Mass Slayer, 19, sentenced to die. Execution may be delayed so he can testify at girlfriend's trial. They tried me for the whole thing, Killer tells press. Charles Starkweather, the 19-year-old boy who went on a homicidal orgy that took 11 lives, was ordered to pay with his own today, end quote. His original execution was postponed due to the automatic appeal, but the original verdict was upheld. In March, he was granted a stay of execution, allowing him the opportunity to plead for his life before the State Board of Pardons and Parole. The board refused his request and set the execution date for May. Guy and Helen Starkweather do not attempt to defend their son at first. Guy Starkweather even missed his court date and had to be subpoenaed to testify on his son's behalf for the next day. But then they would try several times to save their son. They are made out in the press to be uncaring and unsympathetic, but they fought for reprieve after reprieve until the very last moment. The night before his execution, the prison chaplain went to his cell at midnight. Charlie was set to die at 6 a.m. Then, 98 minutes before he was scheduled to die, Charlie's parents were able to come through with the stay of execution. He was given until June 4th to prepare another appeal. No time to celebrate, his parents rallied hard for the new plan. They had hopes for a new attorney and a new trial. Charlie's father found an attorney who would take on the case for free. But the high court said enough was enough. His new date was set for the 25th of June. Not discouraged, his parents still fought. Side note, the doctor who was supposed to pronounce the prisoner dead following the execution died himself of a heart attack only moments before the execution was scheduled. Paul Douglas, one of the prosecution's team, remembered, quote, An old doctor who was to pronounce Charlie dead had, in fact, dropped dead himself of a heart attack. Of course, the reporters said, That makes twelve, end quote. Del Harding, a newspaper reporter from the Lincoln Star, covered this case from beginning to end. He was assigned to cover the execution as well. He would recall, quote, I was the brash, eager young reporter and pushed my way to the front of the line. I was sitting in the front row, sitting in a metal chair on a rubber pad. The electric chair was probably 12 feet from the front row, a hell of a lot closer than I thought it would be. I thought, I don't know if I want to be this close or not. So I stepped back and went to the second row for whatever psychological or physical protection that gave me, end quote. Then Harding continues, quote, I'll never forget Charlie walking in, and he kind of looked out at us, and he got this quizzical little half-smile on his face. I was amazed at how relaxed he was, end quote. They strapped him in and asked him if he had any last words, and he just looked down and shook his head. 
Charles was executed at the Nebraska State Penitentiary in Lincoln, Nebraska at 12.01 on June 25, 1959. Harding would recall, quote, It was very quick. It was very clean and, in my opinion, virtually painless. My feeling afterward was that it was too damn good for him. By the time Charlie was executed, I knew the details of these things and I thought he got off pretty easily, really. End quote. Charles Starkweather is buried in the Wayuka Cemetery in Lincoln, sharing the same grounds as five of his victims, the Bartlett's and the Wards. In the jail cell that Charles stayed overnight in his commute back to Lincoln, they found these words etched into the wall, quote, By the time anybody reads this, I will be dead for all the killings. Then they cannot give Carol the chair too. From Lincoln, Nebraska. They got us January 29, 1958. Killed 11 persons. Charles killed 9 all men. Carol killed 2 all girls. End quote. Below that, two names are etched into a heart. Charles Starkweather and Carol Fugit. As a mother of grown daughters and with me traveling alone across the country, personal safety is always on my mind. I am always aware of my surroundings. I always let my people know where and when I'm going places. But to add that extra level of safety, I am never unprotected. Thanks to Damsel in Defense, I have several options for my personal safety and can I just say they are super cute. But don't think that just because they have bling that they won't do some damage to allow you to get to safety. And Damsel in Defense has thought of everything. DNA grab, GPS alerts, and easy to carry and access should the need ever arise. For your safety and all the women in your sphere, I beg you to check out these amazing products at www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones. That's www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones. Her Story Carol Fugit had to wait before her trial could begin for the state Supreme Court to decide if she would be tried as a minor or as an adult. The trial of Carol Fugit, which began four months after Starkweather was found guilty, was similar to his in respect that they both had many of the same characters in their same roles, and many of the same witnesses, and the same theatrics. At 14, Carol was the youngest female ever to be tried for first-degree murder in America. Despite this, under Nebraska law, she could still face the electric chair if convicted. Right from the moment of her arrest, she claimed that she was held against her will and was completely innocent of any of the murders. In fact, she hadn't even seen any of the murders being held hostage in the car. As her attorney, John MacArthur, would put it, quote, This girl was introduced to this horrible sequence of events by opening the door and having a gun stuck in her face, end quote. He felt she was already thought to be guilty before ever entering the courtroom being unable to get a fair trial. He believed that her rights had already been violated and worked tirelessly to serve his client. 
The press was brutal in their opinions and made no attempts to curb sensational headlines to sell papers. It was one thing to go after Charlie, he already admitted to guilt, but Carol Fugit stood her ground on her innocence. Her statement to her attorney was recorded as follows, narrated through Charles MacArthur. Quote, she had known Charles Starkweather for some time and had gone with him a few times, but they had broken up simply because she did not particularly like him. He was something of a braggart and rather crude in his ways and she had not seen him for some weeks prior to the day in January of 1958, when she came home from school, got off the school bus at her front door, and when she opened the door she was confronted by Charles Starkweather and a gun. Her family was nowhere in sight, but he told her they were all right, but under his control. There was no evidence of anything being wrong in the house as far as the struggle taking place. Charles Starkweather held her there for several days, and she became more frightened as time went on. He tied her up, threatened various things, and when the police came calling, he managed to put them off, and she became convinced that Charlie Starkweather could just about do as he pleased. He finally left the house and took her along on this long, bizarre journey of bloodshed and violence in which she said she was constantly in fear of her life and several times attempted to get messages to people when they were close enough without success, and that while she did not see most of the murders, she was close by under circumstances where she could not get away, nor were there any other people close enough that she could make contact. She became more and more tired until she could barely walk, and finally in Wyoming, when the police closed in, she broke away." End quote. The innocence of Carol Fugit would divide the courtroom, friendships, and families as the whole world was caught up in the unfolding drama. Was she a hostage or was she a participant? Everyone would weigh in with their options. Sheriff Heflin would throw his vote in that Fugit was a victim. He believed that she was held against her will, a hostage afraid of her life. Mrs. Heflin would be in charge of Carol while she was held in Douglas, Wyoming, and believed in her innocence as well. Sheriff Ansley, the one who participated in the high-speed chase, would say, quote, I don't think she was a killer herself. She was just a participant, end quote. Bill Romer, the deputy sheriff that Carol would run to on the day the duel was stopped, believes, quote, as you talk more and more to her, you could see that the killings hadn't bothered her any. There didn't seem to be any remorse in her at all about the fact that her mother and stepsister were dead, or even her stepfather. End quote. Tom Allen, a 12-year reporter for the Omaha World Herald, would recall, quote, I've talked to veteran detectives who were on the case, and the one thing that amazed them was the utter calmness in which she met them at the door. Neighbors had said they thought something was up because they hadn't seen any of the family. Carol just calmly met them at the door and said, nope, they were all ill with the flu. They bought her story because there was no inkling of what was to come. It was later that they discovered the murders. By then, she and Starkweather had taken off on this big spree, end quote. James MacArthur, who the court appointed defense attorney, and often compared to the character of President Lincoln, chose to go the victim route in Carroll's defense. He believed wholeheartedly that she was totally innocent. 
so much so that he took her case pro bono and would continue to fight for her rights for the rest of his life. Lincoln residents, however, did not agree and had no problem telling him so. The majority of Lincoln, Nebraska was tired of hearing about the trial and the two people that put their entire state on edge and were only divided on if she should get the death penalty or life in prison. While Carol herself seemed to think that she would be acquitted and it would all be over soon, she was sadly mistaken. While MacArthur himself despised the press, he realized that they may be his only hope of changing the public's view of Fugit. He felt that Carol had gotten so much bad press and wouldn't get a fair trial because people had already formed an opinion of her. So he attempted to reintroduce her to the public the way he saw her. He had formed an acquaintance with a newer television reporter from the local television station and thought she would be the best one to conduct the interview. It was going to be done press conference style, but all the questions had to go through Mrs. Nanette Beaver. Nanette would recall, quote, I met Carol for the first time, and here was this tiny little girl with a new skirt her lawyers bought for her, and she had a nervous smile, and I told her, everything would be fine, end quote. October 20th, 1958. It was held in a small room, but it was packed with reporters and flashing camera bulbs. Quote, and then they opened the door, and I could not believe the amount of people and cameras, about 35 reporters and 11 different film cameras, along with several still cameras with flashing bulbs that went off all throughout the interview, and I remember John MacArthur explaining the ground rules to the reporters, end quote. MacArthur basically laid down the law of how things would go, and if they didn't like it, they could leave. And no one wanted to miss out on any story to come from this girl. They sat at a small table in the front of the room, side by side, Carol and Nanette, as she began her interview. Quote, My biggest shock came when I asked Carol her first question, and she transformed into this mean, cold adult and not the child I had met moments before, end quote. Carol Ann is poised and emotionless with the exception of a flash of anger or contempt that flickers across her eyes. Nanette asks, question, have you gone with him for quite a while? Carol answers, yes, I went with him a year before, and then I told him I didn't want to see him again, and he came back. And after that Sunday, I went with him, and I kept telling him to leave. I told him I didn't ever want to see him again. Question. Why didn't you want to go with him again? Answer. I think he's crazy. End quote. Following the interview, Ms. Beaver would say, quote, I know that MacArthur was watching and feeling that this was backfiring, but there was nothing he could do. And I was trying to help calm her down during the interview, but it didn't help. She was somebody else during that interview. End quote. Fugit, it turned out, was the one that enjoyed the spotlight. She had new, colorful, and pressworthy stories every day of the trial. Fugit had told authorities that Charlie was part of a gang that would stay at her house and plot bank robberies. Upon further investigation, police discovered Starkweather was a part of a gang, a hot rod club, for a short period of time in 1955. But the gang 
disbanded because they couldn't decide what a hot rod club was supposed to do. She claimed not to have known her parents were dead until they reached Wyoming, which we touched on earlier in the episode, sorry, that there would be no way that could be true. She admitted listening to the radio that was broadcasting the latest news updates. She read the newspapers and they watched television. Everyone was talking about the Starkweather Fugit manhunt. While they were in her house after the murder of her family, she would claim that Charlie would stand on the other side of the door and hold a gun to her head listening to what she said. He told her that her family was being held hostage in another location. Both kids were guilty of lying many times over, but the brilliant armchair detective that I am, it's clear to see. Now. But at the time, trying to sort out the facts in real time without the technology we have today, it's understandable how the ongoing trial continued to be a circus. Carol was not going to budge on her determination for everyone to believe that she was innocent, so the prosecution had to poke holes in her story another way. If she was held hostage, why didn't she run away? Several times she was seen going into gas stations alone, and she was the one purchasing maps and food. The Lincoln Star would report on a waitress's testimony from November 6th, saying that she saw the couple come into the restaurant she was working at, and Carol was alone for about 10 minutes. She said Carol, quote, seemed calm and Starkweather was nowhere in sight, end quote. Charlie would testify, quote, Sometimes when I would go in and get hamburgers, she would be sitting in the car with all the guns. There would have been nothing to stop her from running away, end quote. Carol's story was already doubted by authorities, and when Charlie recanted his account that he had acted alone, she came under further scrutiny. Charlie was incensed when he discovered she told the police she was being held hostage against her will. He no longer attempted to protect her, but confessed to her being a willing companion. Paul Douglas, who worked on the prosecution's team, would recall, quote, Charlie was the one we really wanted overall. Early on, we sensed the hostility between Charlie and Carol. And, well, we brought things to Charlie's attention, such as things Carol was saying about him in order to get him to testify against her. We could do that. He was our witness, end quote. Jilted love makes her a pretty fierce enemy. In one letter Charlie writes to Prosecutor Scheel when he stops protecting Carol from the blame, quote, I'll be convicted for what I did, and that's okay, but I'll be damned if I'll be sentenced for what I didn't do, end quote. Carol Fugit would write two letters to the governor and one to the President of the United States to stay Charlie's execution so she could see him. They had not spoken to each other since Wyoming. Now, before you think this is a gesture of love or affection or forgiveness, she would write, quote, If she could see him, he might tell the truth and show that she was innocent, end quote. The request was denied the day prior to his execution. Despite being confronted with discrepancies in her stories, Carol maintained her innocence. And John MacArthur did, too. In the closing statements of the trial, the prosecutor would tell the jury, quote, Even 14-year-old girls must recognize they can't go on eight-day murder sprees. 
the time has come when she must face the consequences of her actions, end quote. The jury thought so too. The jury deliberates for 24 hours before reaching a verdict of guilty on the second count, which was murder while in the perpetration of robbery. This is when she confessed to taking the money from Bobby Jensen's wallet and admitting to holding a gun on them to keep them from running away. Judge Harry A. Spencer, too, did not believe Fugit was held hostage. The jury decides the sentence, life imprisonment. Carol Fugit was found guilty. Upon hearing the verdict, she would break down in tears. It's November 21, 1958, six months after the death of her boyfriend by electrocution, and she gets to live. She was to serve out her time at the Nebraska Correctional Center for Women in York, Nebraska. Del Harding, retired reporter of the Lincoln Star, would recall, quote, I didn't seriously ever think she would receive the death penalty, although I felt personally she should have. Based on some things that didn't come out in court, there was no doubt in my mind, and still is no doubt in my mind, that she personally killed at least two or three of the people, end quote. The prosecution team was satisfied with this outcome. Tom Allen would write, quote, Had Carol's trial ended up as a hung jury, we probably would have tried her on the murder of the ward's maid, Lillian Fensel, end quote. Eventually, her sentence would be commuted from life to 30 to 50 years, which would allow her to be eligible for parole, citing the U.S. Supreme Court ruling it was unconstitutional for juveniles to be given mandatory life sentences even though it had been decided that she would be tried as an adult. Carol Fugit won her parole in June 1976 after serving only 17 and a half years. When she was released, she changed her name and relocated to Michigan where she tried to disappear. She worked as an orderly in Lansing Hospital for 20 years. She got married in 2007, but in 2013, she and her husband were in a car accident where he died and she was seriously injured. In 1983, Carol appeared on Lie Detector, a syndicated TV show hosted by celebrity attorney Lee Bailey. The results of her test were inconclusive when she said she was forced to accompany Starkweather on his rampage, but Bailey assured her, saying that it was such a huge part of her life that, if she was lying, he was sure the machine would have showed it. Carol took the olive branch and claimed it as a victory. She smiled for the press, celebrating her vindication of the truth finally coming to light. I guess inconclusive was going to be as close as she was going to get. In 2017, she requested for the second time to be pardoned by the Nebraska Board of Pardons. The Chicago Tribune said her request for a pardon was denied. The board voted 3-0 to zero to deny the application, stating that the purpose of a pardon is to restore someone's rights, not to absolve them from their crime. Side note, her court-appointed defense attorney, John MacArthur, fought for her and continued to file appeals and revisions continually until his death, never charging her a dime. And then his son followed in his footsteps. This last blow, though, may just finally close the case file forever. Quote, You can't know what it's like to be a person in history 
and everyone hates you, end quote. Thank you for joining me this week. I love hearing what you think of these stories, and if you'd like to participate in the conversation, you can join me on social media, on my website, or even leave a comment on the episode. What's your opinion? Was Carol Fugit a hostage, a participant, or just along for the ride? And to help others get in on the chats, be sure to leave an amazing review over on Apple. I appreciate your reviews so much. I know everyone is busy, and it just means so much to me that you take the time to leave feedback. Thank you. Okay, that wraps it up for this week, then. I'm Elizabeth Bougeret. Until next week. Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Bougeret, produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited, Music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougeret.com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougeret and DCT Enterprises.